Just stop it. The run of the mill, cheesy, humdrum bullshit status quo just tires me out. What fascinates me are the industry disruptors, the superhuman frontiersmen or women who go through hell to achieve their goals. Join me as we meet and learn from those mavericks, rebels, and business leaders that aren't afraid to piss off the establishment in order to make radical change for good. Sponsored by Johto PR, the disruptive anti-PR firm that murders your competition with cinder blocks and cyanide. This is Disruption Interruption. Welcome back, everybody, to Disruption Interruption. I'm your host, KJ, and we are here today to talk with someone who is an industry disruptor that has taken the reins of their industry horse and steered it off the lame, tired path. Today's guest is a disruptor in the next evolution of the relationship between registered investment advisor firms and their investment management solutions. Okay, so why is this important? Typically, there are three traditional investment management models and all have significant shortcomings. They either destroy or transfer significant economic value. Notice that I've used significant twice. Because this innovator has figured out the fourth dimension to investment management models, he's coming to us from Philadelphia. Please welcome our disruptor who figures stuff out pretty quickly sees a clear compass in stressful situations. It's the president and founder of Varium Investment Partners, Christian Hildahl. Hi, how are you? Hi, we need to have a, like a cheer sound, you know, everybody's like, yeah. I know, right? Uh, but I'm, I, think, I think you just <laughs> did my job, so I'm done here. Thank you. Okay, good. Bye-bye. <laughs> Christian, before I ask you the main question, I noticed that the name Varium is Latin. I love Latin for different. It is. Okay. Exactly what it is. And it's designed that way because we are very different from the industry norm. Well, let's get into that. So tell me, what is the main ingredient for disruption? For us, it's, it's radical focus on what we do and how we deliver it. There's two components to what we do. One is not very evolutionary. It's literally quite practical um, in its approach because it's worked for 200 years. Um, What is radical about what we do is the way that we um, partner with and share the economics of our business. And so when I was back doing the traditional RIA model, working with individual investors, pension plans, and so on, managing money, which is my background, Um, we were doing exactly what everyone else was doing. And um, the hard part for me was never managing the money. It was always getting the money. And so one of the things that when I, when I started Varium, I said, look, we have to focus completely on the investment management. It's a full-time job. It, um, it takes intelligence. It takes lots of money. It takes lots of really smart people. And if you're trying to do that while you're trying to raise capital, you're not doing a very good job and you're actually hurting your, hurting your clients. So I said, we'll take this radical focus on the investment management and then we'll partner with investment advisors uh, who are very good at gathering assets, who are very good at the things that we don't do very well, like financial planning and kind of delivering a holistic um, investment advice platform. And let's cut them in on the economics of that so that they don't feel like they need to do the investment management part-time. Um, and in doing that, 
we're actually tapping into two different sources of cash flow. And so the traditional investment advisory model really focuses on um, one half of the client revenue. And so what we decided to do is we, wanted to, we decided to go in and capitalize and monetize the investment management piece of the business and share it with our investment advisor partners. And that's what makes us truly radical. So that's very interesting. It's the first time I've heard a disruptor say radical focus. And yes. it is, but it is most disruptors I talk to, it is very radical. But even if you are focusing on things that are 200 years old, but a, a shift in the radical focus, right? Yeah. Tell, tell me what the status quo is like. You mentioned with, you know, the traditional firm model, right? And you have managing money and then you have getting the money, right? Correct. Yep. Gathering the assets and managing the assets. Gathering the assets and managing the assets. Right. And which did you say was the more difficult piece? Or the piece that you asked. Or yeah. Okay, good. Which is tell me what the status quo is like. Which part gets the short shrift? Which part needed to be focused on differently and why? So the traditional model is for advisors to go gather assets, develop relationships, ship it off to a mutual fund company in some sort of asset allocated fashion, hopefully, and then um, let these third parties do what they do. Um, they charge their fee. They keep their economics. They don't share it with you. It used to be 12B1 fees in mutual funds. That's no longer a thing. Um, so now um, advisors, and I would say the, the more difficult for, from my perspective is that um, gathering assets is, is very difficult. Managing the assets is very easy. I think if you ask most advisors, they would say managing the assets is, is difficult. Although we've got this weird thing now for the last 12 years, market gently rising to the, up and to the right without too much disruption, right? We've had a couple of hiccups here and there, but they've been basically wiped away after two or three months over the last 12 years. So we have this massive complacency, which I think is a huge problem going forward. Um, but um, what, what we have really focused on is, is saying, look, there's only 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days in a year. And if you're going to be really good at what you do, and my dad actually told me this in 1992, my dad was a, a, a branch manager at Merrill Lynch for his entire career. And when I graduated from college, he said, look, if you're getting in this business, you got to figure out who you are and what you want to do. You're either going to be the guy who goes and gets the money or you're the guy who manages money. You can't do both because I've seen incredibly successful people who go out and get the money. I've seen incredibly successful people who go out and manage the money. I've never seen somebody do both well. It's so, kind of a unicorn, isn't it? If somebody does both well. It, it is. And, and I, I would argue that the, it may truly be a unicorn because it doesn't exist. So, so this whole point of managing the money, this is where this transfer of significant economic wealth is happening, right? Correct. Correct. So if the RIA firms or the advisors, right, are getting the money, mm -hmm. they're shipping it off to these third party Correct. companies. Um, right. That's the transfer. That's the 100% transfer of client wealth that we are tapping into and sharing with our advisors. We're sharing that with them and not saying we're going to charge a fee and we're going to kick back some money to you. We're saying, no, I, I called it Varium. 
or different investment because that's what we do and partners because we truly are partners with our advisors. We allow them, we encourage them to own and build economic interest in us via equity. Ultimately, I'd love to have 50% of Varium be owned by our advisor partners. And there's only 10 to 12 of those that we are going to invite in as equity partners. And then 50% owned by me and my team who are managing the money. So by tapping into and monetizing the investment piece, we then can share that with our advisor partners. And that's how we can build massive wealth together. So the goal is to ultimately partner with firms and build them to one, two billion each. So if you do the math, 10 to 12 firms, it's 20 to $25 billion. Is this assets, assets under management? Is that what you're talking about? Got it. Yep. And firms that have achieved that, and they're pretty few and far between on the investment management side are worth, let's call it a billion dollars. So if each one of our 10 firms owns 5%, I'll be writing them a check for $50 million when we monetize this through via a private equity firm or, or a bank or somebody else, or maybe we just continue to have a tremendous cash flow because at that scale, we will, because most of my costs are fixed, right? I pay my people a salary. I have Bloomberg's, I have systems and computers, um, but I don't need to scale up my, uh, my um, capital costs, my, my people and systems for every hundred million, right? Once I have paid for those, I just need to get more money and create scale. And it's every dollar that comes in is essentially profit. Interesting. So the status so quo, tell me what, what is the damage that the status quo does now? I mean, what you're saying to me seems extremely simple. Uh-huh. <laughs> it's, you know, that typically is what happens with innovation, right? You, you yeah. take something, you radically focus it to something very simple. And then you go, why the hell hasn't this been done before? I mean, so why the hell hasn't this been done before? And, and what makes the status quo antiquated at this point? So it hasn't been done before because it hasn't had to be done before. Meaning asset management firms, firms that manage money, haven't had to share their economics. And I grew up, literally grew up in the industry where the advisor was always getting the short end of the stick. And my dad always say, you know, it's, you know, advisors are tough. They're, they're salt of the earth people. They really do like helping people, but they always end up somehow not getting properly compensated for what they do. It's still kind of that way. It's absolutely that way. Absolutely. I mean, sure. even in reputation, I think it even boils down to like how people perceive financial advisors now. Yeah, but financial advisors have done a pretty good job of of making themselves that way. Just the way active managers have done a really good job of making indexing really easy to do. Okay. They haven't done a great job. And there's always an outlier. And we're always seeing about people taking advantage of other people or not doing a good job for people. I was at a conference last year. Well, gosh, maybe it was was pre-pandemic. And um, I was invited to, to speak and, and I said, I just want to see a show of hands of the number. It was all advisors. So the, the number of, how many of you think you're a top 10 investment manager of your client's assets? And I thought that we would have a lot of egos and people would be like, yeah, absolutely. It's me. I had no hands go up. And I said, doesn't that kind of frighten you? 
that you, none of you think you're top decile in managing your client assets. And they didn't really care. I said, my, my clients are perfectly comfortable, perfectly fine. They don't care about performance. I said, mm, well, maybe in a gently rising market, they don't care about performance. They're sure going to care if the market goes down 30 to 40% again. Mm-hmm. And what are you doing to mitigate that? What are you doing to risk manage your portfolios? What are you doing to actually follow your asset allocation models? And when you, even if you are building your asset allocation models to certain risk tolerances, how are you following that? How are you managing it? How are you rebalancing it? How are you reporting it? And the, the funny thing is, is that, you know, most advisors just, uh, we quarterly rebalance or we semi-annual rebalance or, yeah, we never really rebalance. My clients just kind of do what I tell them to do. And that's fine. Well, that's not okay with me. <laughs> I don't think so, that's okay with clients. <laughs> I, but again, I think clients in a gently rising market, which we've had for the last 12 years. And I don't think, again, that we're going to have in the next three to five. I think we're going to have a really rough three to five years. Um, clients are going to start asking questions. Why am I paying you 150 basis points to put me in a basic asset allocation model with low cost ETFs? I can do this myself. I know no, you I agree with things. you on that. You know, the, it's the old adage of it's, if it's not broken, don't fix it. Or if things are uptrending, just kind of keep things the way they are. What has, I mean, this may sound like a silly question because we all know what's been happening, but when people listen to this podcast later on, they're going to going to want to know what circumstances have changed it. You're saying it's gone from maybe it was nice to have, or they didn't really have to have it to now it has to be that way. What has caused that? What's causing the change is that we are no longer in a 30 year cyclical cycle where fixed income and interest rates have gone from when I got into the business, the 10 year was at eight and a half percent. I mean, it got down to below 1%, 50 basis points. Now we're in a situation where we're going to have gently rising interest rates. So the cost of everything to finance it is going to go up. Discount rates are going to go up, meaning the longer it takes you to earn a profit, the more we have to discount that, the less your company is worth. So growth stocks look out, Um, especially if we get sort of a radical change in interest rates, which we might get because inflation is going crazy. Um, I mean, you just, I mean, in everyday life, there's not a person on this planet basically who isn't seeing it. So if we get a rising interest rate environment rather than a, a, a falling interest rate environment, it's going to be much more difficult for companies to be valued at, at, at some of the PE ratios that we've seen. Their cash flows are going to be discounted more, more uh, dramatically, and they're going to essentially be worth less. Meaning right now the market is price pretty perfectly. I think we stole a lot of future performance in this sort of pandemic, printing money, everybody feels good, we can't possibly go down scenario, which I think is dangerous. And, you know, there's, there's 35 year old advisors who've never seen a bad market, who've all they had to do is this Pavlovian market goes down, corrects 5%, just buy, buy, buy. And the market goes back up and their clients are happy and it's not a problem. We've stolen, again, a lot of that performance over the next three to five years. And so we are going to have very difficult conversations with our clients when we say we're charging 150 basis points for our advice and we lost 5%. So when you say um, 
you know, we've stayed off or, you know, that conversation is three to five years away. Are you talking about all the, the printed money that they've put out into the economy? Yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yep. And that, so, you know, so we've got this artificial, almost artificial economy that is funded by excessive government uh, without getting into politics. Um, it's unsustainable. And at some point, the market has to stand on its own. Companies have to stand on their own. Consumers have to stand on their own globally. And so when money isn't being sent to your mailbox by the government and you have to go and earn it, right? You know, I, I read an interesting statistic that, uh, I mean, there's a couple of weird things that have happened. One, you know, obviously government intervention. Two, crypto. Something like 4% of the working population is not going back to work because they made so much money in crypto that they don't have to work anymore, or at least they can support whatever lifestyle. I mean, they're going to probably have to go back to work at some point. We got this like sort of weird, perfect storm of you know, innovation and government intervention that have created an artificial, I call it an artificial economy, that is going to be very difficult to transition out of. In, and that is really going to hit in the next three to five years. And when you say it's going to hit, what does that look like? Paint that for me, because this is all yeah. part of the status quo. So I don't think we're going to see radical changes in our in our lives and our salaries and in how we get paid and, and the work that we do, but we're going to see it in asset prices. So the stock market isn't going to go up 25% every year. Bonds aren't going to continue to, you know, yields aren't going down, prices up. So we're going to lose money in, in quote unquote safe investments. Our houses aren't going to go up 12% every year. So all the assets that we own are not going to appreciate at the same level that we've seen in the last 12 years, right? And what we may actually see is, 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 is this sort of rapid, radical repricing, right? They say, you know, assets go up, it's like walking up a stairway. And then when they go down, it's like falling down an elevator shaft, right? They go down way faster than they go up. So the repricing on the downside could be really rapid and really painful. And it could be almost a feedback loop where we go down 15% and people panic and then we go down another 10% and then people really panic and then we go down 25% more. All of a sudden we're at half the price we were at the, on the S&P. And our houses- How could that not affect a trickle down effect to salaries and you know, how well, it we will live? Because and... It will be in a recession. So yeah. people who are, you know, we've got more jobs available than we have people on unemployment now. So technically we should, everyone should have a job. You're going to have a lot fewer jobs available and you're going to have a lot of layoffs. And that, again, is almost, again, on a feedback loop. So you have lower, lower wages or lower people working, fewer people working, um, which then kind of decrease asset prices again. So you get this, this well, it's a virtuous cycle when it's in what we're in now. It's sort of a death spiral in what I think could be happening in the next couple of years. So the advice of, you know, Pavlovian 5% corrections, buying everything, you're going to be buying, it's going to go down 10%. Okay, let's buy again. Oh, then it goes down another 10%. Next thing you know, you've really kind of messed up your, your client's, you know, retirement and financial goals because you haven't really looked at high quality investments that can protect against that, which is all we think about, all we do. Uh, and you're not doing the, the, the kind of things in your asset allocation, your diversification, in how you're picking your managers, where you're putting your money, 
that is really going to protect your clients. And so I, I, you know, people ask me who my biggest competitors are. And I say, I have two extremely fierce competitors. First is ego. So advisors have fairly big egos, right? They think that they're great at everything. And then once we get past ego, which is really hard to get past, we have inertia. Well, we've been doing this and it's working and our clients aren't really, you know, I'm not really going to call them now that things are going so well and saying we're changing everything. And we're going to do this instead of what we have been doing. And we're not, we don't radically change everything that advisors do with their investments because we can't, we have to be incremental. So I always say, if you start working with us, you're, you're going to see change over 12 to 18 months. So we manage the taxes. We try to figure out how we can convert from what you have been doing to what we do. Um, some of the best managers in the world, covered call strategies, really kind of basic stuff if you think about it. But most advisors don't do it and don't provide it to their clients because it's time consuming, um, costs more money because we have to have more systems and, and people to do these things. Um, but at the end of the day, if you look at some of those basic things that we do for the advisors we work with, just a basic covered call strategy, we're adding between 200 and 300 basis points of cash on cash performance every year, which doesn't sound great in a 25% up market. It sounds fantastic in a flat market and in a down market, if you're able to sort of mitigate some of the risks and your clients want to be allocated, you don't want to necessarily time the market. But if you're making your clients' money work harder, that's never going to be a bad thing. Never. And yes. And so you're gonna you're gonna have your clients say, "Yeah, I know it was a you know a flat year or a down year, but we were we were actually we actually beat the index, and we actually made a little money this year when everyone else was down." You're going to start attracting more capital. You're going to get more loyalty from your customers, your current customers. They're going to refer their friends to you, and it's going to be a way for you to totally differentiate yourself from the crowd. The one thing that, you know, the Varium was spawned out of the idea that everyone is trying to commoditize the investment management process. And what it, what's the only lever you can pull on a commodity? It's price. Everyone's complaining. Fees are going down. We can't charge as much because you're just like everybody else. So if you're charging 150 basis points and someone's willing to do it for 120, why pay the extra 30? And if there's someone willing to do it for 75, why pay the extra 45 and so on and so forth? And if someone's willing to do it almost for free and it's just basic commodity, everyone's racing to the bottom. And, and they're so all typically equated or perceived to be the same. They are. I, and, and you know what? I've, I've seen so many different portfolio strategies that I'm just like, oh, here we are again, another basic model with low cost ETFs that perform subpar, subpar performance and they're charging next to nothing for it and they're not doing anything special. And then they wonder why their client is saying, I'm not gonna pay what I'm paying or I'm going to somebody else. And so, you know, advisors are running to stand still right now in a fee compressed world and it's their own fault because they've commoditized themselves. And that's what we offer. We offer a differentiated product. I completely agree with you. It's this disease of putting everything on automation and just being okay with subpar performance. Yeah. And I'm okay with the, the commodity aspect because I'm still getting paid yep. on subpar performance. So, so who are the early adopters of this? Because 
we're in a very, you know, you're in an industry that is rife with um, a lot of false data, a lot of fixed ideas, right? A lot of people, um, consumers or even people in the industry putting their head in the sand, mm-hmm. right? So early adopters seem to me to be, they, they see what's coming and they see the visionary aspect of it. Who, like, who are the early adopters of this? Well, it's, it's interesting because they're, the idea of outsourcing is actually gaining in popularity and more and more advisors are actually outsourcing their compliance and their investments. I mean, right. asset mark, invest net. Yeah. These firms have all gathered billions and trillions of dollars. So advisors actually do recognize that they need to have some sort of good advisors, the ones who are growing, recognize that they, you know, they're either going to have to spend a lot of money and bring it in-house. Right. And then, you know, you have one sort of CIO. Um, they're fairly expensive. Most of them aren't very good. Um, or they outsource it to an investment or some sort of platform. But the platforms have gotten so vanilla and so large themselves that there's no differentiation. So if I'm an advisor who uses Asset Mark, I'm not differentiating myself at all, and I, I probably shouldn't use actual names. If I'm, if I'm an advisor using a TAM, I look just like the advisor down the street or next door, or whatever it is. I'm looking exactly like my competitor because they've gotten so large that they use all the same mutual funds or SMAs or, or whatever. So they may have a little technology sort of advantage at how they put it all together, and there's been some re- like really interesting growth in some in some um, TAMP platforms, but at the end of the day, you're not really differentiating yourselves. You're not really customizing portfolios. You're certainly not tax managing those portfolios if you don't have a total view of how your large cap growth manager is managing versus your large cap value manager, your international manager, and so on. And that's what we do. We actually our model is different because we don't just do an asset allocation and send it off to a bunch of different SMAs. We actually have the SMA send us their model. And then we do all of the trading, the rebalancing, the reporting. And we do that with a with a, a, an eye towards doing it tax efficiently. So low turnover, because most of our clients pay taxes. They're, you know, they're retail advisors with retail investors. So we try to get low turnover. We go out and scour the universe. I spend almost all my time scouring the universe for the best third-party managers in the world. We don't have proprietary products. We're not managing and picking stocks ourselves, even though that's what I was trained to do. I've decided that I'm just moving over to managing the asset allocation process. I've got two PhDs that work on that full-time. I got a couple of the CFAs that do um, help me in the manager selection process and our alternatives process, uh, putting it all together with uh, one of the best traders that I've ever met. Um, worked for 25 years on uh, at Merrill Lynch and Morgan Stanley. Um, you can't replicate that in a RIA shop, even with a couple of billion dollars. Because if we were to do this in a single shop, some, someone paying us a W-2 salary, it costs two to $3 million just to get us to wake up and come in, right? Then you got to bonus us out and then you got to pay for Bloomberg's and you got to pay for all these systems. It doesn't make sense for advisors to do it in-house. So the only real option has been the sort of well-known TAMPs. But again, there's, they've aggregated so much money that they aren't differentiating hmm. your practice from the guy down the street 
And that's what we do. We don't look like anybody else. Our managers are usually more boutique, meaning that they manage less than $2 billion. If you're InvestNet, you have $2 trillion on the platform, you really can't go out and find those boutique managers. And you certainly can't do the customization that we do. And the interesting thing is, is that we're actually a little bit cheaper than what those options are. So we deliver customization at a lower price. And in most cases, when advisors come over and convert to working with us, it's a win-win-win. The client wins because they get a customized portfolio with some of the best managers in the world. We are doing a cover call overlay, making their portfolios work harder. We're doing it at a lower cost than what they were paying before in their generic mutual funds, which again, they couldn't even tax manage. The advisor gets more time to go out and build their business really that's what drives their bottom line is going out, getting new clients and keeping your current clients happy, not trying to get an extra 25 basis points on your portfolio, spending all of that money, time, effort on a subpar investment process. You get economics because you get additional cash flow because you own a piece of us and potentially an asset in the equity if we ever decide to monetize that. So you're creating an asset out of what was a cost. So we flip that. So we're affecting your balance sheet, affecting your valuation, because you have better cash flow. Multiples on cash flows for RAs are significantly higher if they're a billion-dollar firm versus a $200 million AUM firm. So there's virtuous economics there. And then we win because we're doing what we love, and we're doing it with people that we really like, and we're partnering, and we're creating this our own economic value. And my guys love what they do. I love what I do. Um, we really love making the end client um, more successful. You know, we're never we're we're never going to promise to be the cheapest. Uh, we will promise that we will be the hardest working and most diligent people uh, in regard to your investments. We're not always going to be correct, but we're certainly going to have a reason for what we did. Um, we're extremely data driven, and um, we're doing all the things that if I were to give you my mother's money, I would expect you to do. So that's kind of how I, I, I view the universe. You, the average advisor just cannot do what we do, even though they should be doing it for their clients. And there are just no great options for them in the sort of standard tamps that are available. The only problem that I have in my model is that yeah. I can't massively scale it. I can't work with a thousand advisors. Well, you, you said you didn't want to, I mean, you're I, really picking a choice of, did you say 10 or 20? You're 10, helping 10, to, 10 to 12, I think is the perfect number because and you're want, helping them grow their assets under management to, you know, a couple of billion, but that's what now 25 million. I mean, 25 billion assets under management total. I mean, well, I mean, that's the goal. We're not there. We're not even close. No, so, but that's the, but that is the goal, right? Yeah, that is but the no, goal. So, so why is that a problem not to be able to scale it? Do you really want to be able to scale that? So there's two scales, right? There's the helping a select group massively grow to be cons consequential firms. And that's a billion to two to three to four, right? They can then, they can sell that on its own for let's call it 20 billion of 20 million a billion. So we've just, if we've been able to grow a firm from 300 million to a billion, we just put $12 million in their pocket that way. If we aggregate 10 of those firms, 
And we grow all 10 of them from 3 million to, or three, 300 million AUM to a billion or two. They also have this asset in the economics of, of what we have. So they can sell their RIA firm for 20 million a billion. And they can sell, I can sell mine for probably 30 million a billion because that's just the way the market values um, the investment process, which is, it's ironic that most advisors don't recognize that what they're giving away is more valuable than what they're retaining. Yeah, it sounds like it. it sounds like they just, well, because they haven't had to. Now that- They haven't now had to when they make really good livings. Yeah. Right? So they're making a lot of money without even thinking about how much they're giving away to those third parties. Right? Because well, so there's never what been an this... opportunity to monetize it. Yeah, sorry. What does this do? Like, you know, every disruption changes a value network right? Okay. So you're not scaling it to this, you know, large, large degree, but what is the value network that gets changed here? Is it the third party? Well, the third parties still benefit um, in what we do because what we have is um, the, 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 something's got to give in disruption, right? Yeah. So what we have is, um, Essentially saying, I, I call up SMAs and I say, look, I know you're charging 75 basis points for what you do um, to the average advisor or the average client. I'm going to pay you 18 basis points. And here's why you're going to do it. Because you don't have to trade it. You don't have to do all the compliance around it. You don't have to do the rebalancing and the reporting and all of that. Essentially, if you look at your operation and, and you say you're charging 75 basis points, your profit margin is probably somewhere between 18 and 20 basis points. So all I'm asking you to do is send me your model, which you're already doing. So I'm not asking you to do any extra work. Just send me your model. We'll pay you for whatever hundreds of millions of dollars that we put on your platform, right? I'll write you a check every quarter. And so at the end of the day, what, we're, what breaks is the SMA or third-party investment manage, manager's fee. But it's not really breaking the model because they don't have to do all of that extra work anyways. Which they could be losing anyway. Yeah. Yeah, they could. Or, or, or you know, maybe, it, yeah, maybe it, it, in most cases, as they scale up and get more clients, they have to bring on more systems. They have to bring on more people. Exactly. Their margins actually get compressed. Yep. So in this model, again, they're already building out. They already know what their, you know, their large cap growth portfolio looks like. We're, you know, have these 25 stocks or 30 stocks at, at this percentage. And they just send it to me and then they get a check. So every Monday morning, send me your model just so we're in close compliance with what you want the model to look like. And then anytime you make a change, send me an email. That's all you have to do. So um, what breaks is the, the fee that the uh, investment management firm charges nothing else changes. We don't reach into the pocket of the advisor for any part of their fee. The client, again, usually doesn't see a difference in their fees. What they may see is a actual taking out of the fees. Um, some advisors have been hesitant to switch over to our SMA model, even though it's vastly superior to um, a mutual fund portfolio because you can tax manage things, you can do covered calls, right? All those things we talked about. Because mutual funds take out their fees and they never the client never sees it, right? 
So I talk to a lot of advisors who say, I don't want my clients to see all the fees that are actually coming out. And I say, you're assuming that your clients are idiots and that they don't just go on to Yahoo Finance and type in their mutual and funds. Figure and figure it out. Yeah. Because it takes, it takes them two minutes to figure it out. And again, 12 years of the market gently going up to the right. Most clients don't really pay that much attention to their monthly like, statement or how much it's costing. Yeah. They're going to start paying attention when you start losing money. Yeah. So that's where the next three to five years is, is really, I think, going to be consequential for the industry and really for a lot of young advisors who have, again, 34, 35 year old advisors have never seen a bad market. If you got in at the end of the carnage of 2009, which is now 12 years ago, it's, it's been nothing but like roses and, and, and sunshine. You think this is where the next big disruption will take place in these younger advisors that have never really seen a bad market? Well, they're certainly going to have to figure out how they can do things for their clients that are going to protect assets rather than just straight up growing assets, because it's going to be a rough couple of years. And that could translate into a couple of more rough years. I mean, so a rough couple of years to a couple more, you're talking about a decade. Well, Japan, 1989, right? The world was going to be run by the Japanese in, in, when I was in college, right? And they peaked in 1989. They still aren't back. They may be back now. I, I have to check the charts, but they're not much further ahead than they were 30 years ago, 32 years ago. So mm-hmm. 32 years of, of, of not really making money, if you just were a buy and hold strategy, which is, again, this Pavlovian market dips, let's go buy more. We can have... 20 years of really flat markets. I mean, there, there have been times where PEs and, and, and it's more common than not, you know, we're at 20, 22, 23 PE ratios. I'm not a big fan of PE ratios because earnings is a really easy thing to mess with. I'm more of a cash flow guy, but people like to look at PE ratios. It's more common for the market to be at 12 than it is for it to be at 25. So if you're at 12, you're at half the price we are now. Yeah. And nothing really stays the same. You can say a flat market, but nothing really stays the same. It either goes up or goes down. So that flat market per se is really declining in the whole. Well, you're certainly losing purchasing power. And that's, that's the other big disruptor is, is the fact that um, inflation has really accelerated. Um, you know, I, 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 I wasn't in the business in 1979. I was 10 years old, but um, you know, there's, there's, and, there, and sadly, there's not a lot of folks who were advisors in when we had 18%, 20% interest rates. That is sad. Well, I mean, they're old and they've done pretty well for themselves. If they've, yeah, but we don't have that institutional knowledge when they're gone. Yeah, we don't. Yeah. And so that's the kind of stuff that we look at that we're constantly, that's the stuff that keeps me up at night. How do we, how do we mitigate losses? How do we make money in bad markets or flat markets for, for clients that, that we get high in our, you know, our clients are, are advisors, but ultimately the clients are their clients. How do we make money in flattish markets? How do we make money in down markets? The average advisor isn't really equipped to do that kind of stuff. And, and certainly we're not market timers, but we do 
take massive amounts of data. Again, I you know two data scientists that all they do is try to figure out where ta tactically, where do we want to place money? And you know, they're PhDs, PhDs, CFAs, and, and my CIO is, he's a PhD, a CFA, a chartered market technician, has a CIPM. I mean, I had to get a card. He must have started when he was super young or he has no life other than. Yeah, <laughs> well, he's just, a, he just loves to learn. Yeah. Um, but I had to get him an extra long card because I couldn't fit all that stuff <laughs> behind his name. I said, what are you going to take out? He goes, no, nothing. And he just happens to be a junior too, which really messed up the, the whole size of the card. But anyway, but he's, um, you know, I've, you know, the, the one thing that I, I'm probably most proud of is, is the team that I put together because except for my brother, I am the dumbest guy on the team. And I'm really proud that I was able to actually go out and, and convince these really intelligent, really accomplished people that this is, I think the wave of the future, again, how advisors are going to um, match up with their investment management process and partner with the folks who are delivering that. I really think that we are creating something that, again, I can't massively scale it, but I think other people are going to adopt this, the economics and, and the partners, the true partnership model that I'm trying to create. And I, I really think in, in 10, 15 years, you're going to see an awful lot of folks who are partnering with firms like us, not having the investment management function in-house, but still benefiting from it and working with folks who are differentiating and really delivering value is what we're trying to do. Yeah, I agree with you on that. I mean, you know, it's been a sort of like, well, things have been going well, so they haven't had to, but there has been it's almost like a dormant pent up demand. And that is what disruption services. It services this underserved market that have had this pent up demand. And maybe it's been dormant for a while, but it's been there. And then there's this catalyst that comes along. And I, you know, that was the exact question I was going to ask you, what does it look like in 10 to 15 years? And I completely see what you're talking about. Yeah. I, I think advisors are going to realize that going into their cave, chiseling, on a rock and coming out with a wheel that looks like every other rock that every other came out of every other cave is not a good use of their time. I agree. I agree. So did you ever have some epiphany, some moment where you were like, that's it. Like I'm doing something about this or was it an evolution for you? Um, it was epiphany 20 years in the making. Okay, good. So, <laughs> it was an yeah. evolution, an evolutionary well, epiphany. Yeah. So what happened to me is I was a traditional uh, portfolio manager and what I saw was delivering year in and year out outperformance and still having my clients say, yeah, but I want, I want lower fees. I'm like, I'm killing it. I'm beating all my benchmarks. I'm doing all this really great stuff. You're making more money. And now you want me to work for less? Like you should be wanting to pay me more. Yeah. So I saw this trend in active management. First, active managers have done a great job of putting themselves out of business, right? They don't perform very well for a lot of different reasons, but basically they become closet indexers. And so the trend towards indexing and, and passive investing has, has massively exploded. Everyone knows that. 
But the other trend that I saw was even active managers who were doing a really good job for their clients and actually outperforming were still being asked to cut their fees because someone else would do it cheaper. Even if they weren't doing it as well, people didn't care. They were really more concerned about how much is it costing me. And I always say, I say fees shouldn't matter if you're doing your job. And then when people ask me about fees, I always say, well, let me just ask you, let me, good question. Let me ask you a question. Would you rather have 20% or 5% return? And everyone says, well, I'd rather have 20%. I said, what if that 20% cost you 5% and the 5% only cost you 10 basis points? Which one would you take then? Well, I'll take the 20 and pay 5%. And then obviously, right? And then they go, well, how do you guarantee that you get 20%? I said, well, I can't guarantee it, but here's the process by which I think we can consistently outperform because we are a process company, not a product company, which is also kind of the hard, hard part of convincing advisors to come over. They, they, they always ask for performance. They always said, well, how do, you, how do you put performance on a process that we're going to custom, semi-customize, but in a large part, customize to your, your shop, your customers, your clients? You're not going to look like our other advisors because they have a different way of doing things and we're customizing what we do for them as well. So we're not just saying, here's our product, take it or leave it. We're saying, here's our process and we're going to amend it and work with you in doing this. Again, I can't scale it to a thousand advisors, but I can do that for 10 advisors because they're all going to look pretty similar, but they're not going to be all exactly the same. And so that's, that's what we offer. Again, if we look like we are your internal CIO, then we are really doing our job the way I designed it. So, so your epiphany coming, came from a market that had just always been doing well. And it became so commoditized in the sense that it was like, well, lower my fees, lower my fees. Lower, yeah, yeah, great. You're making, making lower my fees. Well, that performance would, didn't matter. Yeah. Did that and we're piss still you in off? That. We're still, <laughs> of course it does. Yeah. Because I'm competitive. Yeah. I, mean, I, I, I went, I went to the, we went, I, I was with my girlfriend. We went to the grocery store last night and she parked in a space that wasn't closest to the door. I said, why did you park in that closest space? She goes, well, just walk. I go, no, 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 no. That's the better spot. She's like, you're competitive in parking. I said, I'm competitive in everything. <laughs> you're the front row parker. I know you. Yes, I am. So <laughs> I mean, look, I see like when I look at stuff, I see not everything that's going right or great. I see everything that's going wrong and what I can fix to make it even better. And that drives some people crazy, but that's just how I view the world. I say not that things are going great. Let's sit back and enjoy. I say things are going great, but how do we make it even better? So what and that was really like? the epiphany. Oh, go ahead. Say that again. That, that, that was the epiphany. In, in, and even after I had the idea, I, I wrote a paper in 2014. Um, said, uh, have your cake and eat it too. Meaning that you can that have the like best, you. <laughs> you can have the best and best. It's also what the Unabomber said. So take okay. that with a grain of salt. <laughs> we'll so cut that out. <laughs> the idea is that you can have the best investment management and you can make money doing it, not spend millions of dollars trying to achieve it. Yeah. I, I always say the one thing that is transferable between and among invest, in, investment advisory firms is really high quality investments, right? Your investments should be the highest quality, best that they possibly can be. They should be. And that is attainable, right? But most advisors don't do it because okay is good enough. 
And okay is not good enough for me. Well, thank gosh. So Christian, were well, you always this competitive? I'm like looking for the holes in things like, you know, mediocre sucks. Like, what were you like as little Christian? So I was always very competitive. Um, I wasn't the best student, but I was a good enough student. Um, I never liked to lose. Um, I always did the work required to be at the higher end, the top decile of um, my peers and pretty much everything I tried to do. Not a terribly gifted athlete, but I was good enough to, you know, play three sports or actually four sports in high school. Um, so yeah, I, I've always had a the competitive edge. And what I've sports always, did you play? Football, basketball, and baseball. And then my senior year, I ran track when I wasn't, huh. when I didn't have basketball. I went to a small, so I, I, I had a little bit of an unfortunate high school experience because my dad was a Merrill Lynch guy and he got a great job, but I got transferred right in the middle of my high school career. Ugh. So as a sophomore, as a freshman, I was not in the same high school as I was as a sophomore. And as a junior, I was not in the same high school as I was as a sophomore. And as a senior, I was not in the same place I was as a junior. That's rough. So it was rough. Um, but I was kind of used to like my dad moving every three to four years. So I was, I was pretty good at meeting people and sort of putting myself into uncomfortable situations in terms of like social. So, um, but I was always like the new guy. So, I mean, that creates its own sort of set of, of like problems for an adolescent, but um, you know, but I was also, I was able to use like humor and, and kind of my wit to, you know, make friends and things like that. I was, again, I was a decent athlete, so I was able to, you know, make teams and play sports and um, that helps. Yeah. And but so, also but, you, you know, know, when you go into new places, it, you look at things differently. You have to. Yeah. I mean, I mean, I can see how you look at things, um, you know, because you've always been sort of an outsider going into a new place, going into, and you gotta, place. you always gotta figure it out because you don't want to be that nail that sticks up because uh -uh. nails get hammered. That's true. That's true. So yeah, I can, so what are your crazy passions outside of work? Are you still really involved in sports or, you know, I know you have kids now. I do right now. My passion <laughs> is getting, is getting my, my little genius who's way smarter than me, um, into college. Um, I mean, this kid is extraordinary. He is number one in his class, perfect score on his boards. And, you know, of course wants to go to Yale or Harvard or Dartmouth and those schools let 3% of students or applicants in. So, but it may be, he, he just um, got some bad news. He was, he applied for um, a very prestigious scholarship that would have given him a free ride to UNC and some other stuff. And he didn't get it. And I'm his sorry. mom and I were actually like, I mean, we were sad that he didn't get it, but we were also like, a little adversity is probably going to be good for this kid. <laughs> so my passion is, is my kids and trying to spend as much time with them before they are literally out of the nest and, and probably gone forever. Um, I, I love skiing and snowboarding and um, surfing. And so I've got a place in North Carolina that um, I try to spend as much as where my kids live. Um, I try to spend as much time there as I can. And in the wintertime, I try to get as much snow time as I possibly can. That's awesome. Before I'm too old to do it. Do you snowboard and ski with your kids? I do. I do. 
And um, it's one of my favorite things. It's not necessarily their favorite thing, but <laughs> drag them with you. Who cares? Doesn't, doesn't matter. matter. We're going. <laughs> Dad's <Yeah>. paying. <laughs> exactly. Dad ain't always gonna pay. Like, That's right. I'll go where Dad pays. You got exactly. it. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, no, we've got a trip coming up here um, in March. So I'm looking forward to that. With both, Oh, good. Both good. Well, stay safe. So Christian, how do people get a hold of you? So um, we've got a website, um, www.variumip.com. Um, I'm on LinkedIn. Last name is H-Y-L-D-A-H-L. So I'm happy to connect with people on LinkedIn and um, will come right to me and we can um, have a conversation. I'm happy to take folks through the entire presentation, the value proposition, all the things that we do, how we do it. I really try to be as transparent as possible. I don't care if people steal my idea. Again, I think this is going to be how this is done in 15 years. So steal my idea, please. But if you're a growth-minded advisor who doesn't believe that your best and highest use of your time is the investment management piece. We are your solution and we can grow together and make beautiful, beautiful music that is going to be very lucrative for the advisor and hopefully much better for their clients. Yeah. Well, ultimately it's really all about the clients and the consumers, right? Ultimately, it, ultimately. It has to be. It, it has I mean, to be. Fiduciary means a lot to me. Yeah. And we always want to do what's best for the client. And so we try to keep our fees as competitive as possible. Again, we try to do all the right things in terms of the allocations and finding the best managers and then making that money work as hard as we can. So that's what we're all about. I have to say, I love how transparent you are. And um, it's something that I have noticed with real innovators is that they're willing to talk to people. They're willing to give them the info. Um, It's not a secret kept in the ivory tower. It really shows a purpose towards making things better. I really appreciate that about you. So listeners call him because he gave you their phone number and not many of our guests do that. Thank you, Christian. Hey, the more the merrier. And uh, if we can, if we can help, um, you know, even, even folks that don't work with us, um, we're happy to sort of guide you along the path of what we believe is best practices. And if you want to do it yourself, great because we really do just want to do what's best for the client. Yeah, let's change that dynamic. Thank you. Absolutely. Thank you. You bet. That's a wrap, everyone. If you learned something today, tell someone about this podcast. And thank you for listening to Disruption Interruption, where we transform lives, change consumer behavior, alter economics, and never accept the status quo. Ciao for now. Because we live in a highly litigious society, with America being one of the top litigious countries in the world, here's our legal disclaimer. This information is not intended to be a substitute for professional public relations or legal advice. Do not disregard seeking professional legal, healthcare, or financial advice, or delay seeking professional PR or legal advice because of something you have heard here. Contact an attorney to obtain advice on any particular legal situation or problem. Use of this podcast or our website or any of its social media or email links do not create an agency-client relationship between Joto PR and the user.